It's March 10th, 1723, on Roatan Island, 40 miles off the Caribbean coast of Honduras. A solitary figure stalks the shore of this otherwise uninhabited island, searching for food. He wears only trousers and a tattered hat. Otherwise, he is naked and pale-skinned, having spent much of the previous year locked inside the hold of a ship. The man's name is Philip Ashton, a fisherman from Marblehead, Massachusetts. For much of the previous year, he has been the prisoner of Ned Lowe, one of the most notorious and vicious pirates in living memory. Lowe is easily the most evil individual Ashton has ever encountered. Every moment he spent at his mercy was pure terror. But as of yesterday, Ashton has finally broken free of Lowe's depraved clutches. And even now, cast away on this deserted island, facing the prospect of starvation, dehydration, and crippling loneliness, Ashton is overwhelmed with joy, glad to have escaped the madman and the prospect of certain death amongst his pirates. While making his escape, Ashton had run barefoot through the forests of Roatan Island, slashing his feet to pieces in the process. Now he wades into a shallow pool of water, looking for fish. The soothing effect is immediate and blissful. Despite his many years as a fisherman, Ashton finds it impossible to catch anything with just his bare hands. Fortunately, the island's trees are abundant with coconuts and fruits, so he will not starve just yet. Many sailors have faced marooning before. Men often survive for months, even years, but they're usually given a fighting chance. Even pirates will leave a man with a knife and pistol to survive on. Ashton has nothing. No weapon to help him hunt, no tools to build shelter, and no flint to light a fire. He is under no illusions of how desperate things may soon become. Days pass, then weeks. Ashton's initial joy dissipates. He grows thin, literally withering in the heat. His only hope is that a friendly ship might pass by and offer salvation. So he scans the horizon daily, but sees nothing, not even a distant sail. On one blessed day, Ashton stumbles upon a turtle nest, full to the brim with fresh eggs. He falls on them like a ravenous dog, eating them raw. A month passes. Ashton is now burnt and blistered and resigned to his fate. Then one morning, everything changes. Ashton looks out and sees what appears to be a single canoe rowing toward him. At first he thinks his eyes are playing tricks on him. Surely it's a mirage. But as the glimmering figure grows closer, Ashton sees that it is indeed another human being. 
Overjoyed, he waves the sailor over. The new arrival is an older man, a grizzled Scotsman fleeing the Spanish from the mainland. And his canoe is packed full of provisions. The two castaways become immediate friends and the old Scotsman happily shares his supplies. Inside his canoe is a knife, a bottle of gunpowder, some flint, and five pounds of pork. For Ashton, it might be the happiest day of his life. Over the following days, the Scot teaches Ashton how to catch and cook wild game, which berries to eat and which to avoid. And more importantly, provides a welcome respite from the crushing loneliness of life on the island. He also offers a sympathetic ear, comforting Ashton, who still wakes every night in a panic, tormented by the recurring nightmare of being back in Nedlow's company. After a few days, the Scotsman strikes out to explore the rest of the island. And so, promising he will return within a week, Ashton's new friend rows away. But that night, a violent squall hits the island, and the Scotsman never returns. From that day onwards, Ashton battles severe depression as he continues to live on Roatan alone. As the months pass, Ashton gives up hope of ever meeting another human. Every night, he goes to sleep under the star-filled sky and prays that at least he will be spared the nightmares. He begs not to be transported back to that damned pirate ship, enduring the grotesque insanities of Captain Edward Lowe. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. In the months since Philip Ashton escaped his clutches, Ned Lowe's reputation as a fearsome pirate grows even greater. From New England to the Caribbean and across the North Atlantic, reports of the atrocities committed under Lowe's command horrify all who hear them. Tales of mutilations, decapitations, disembowelments and general slaughter have shocked the government of the British colonies into action. As his pirate armada continues to cause havoc out on the high seas, the British Royal Navy dispatched ships to hunt down Lowe and his crew. Ned Lowe's war against the world is headed towards its bloody conclusion. Since the spring of 1723, Lowe has acquired a new flagship called the Fortune, more powerful than the fancy. He has also added another sloop to his small armada called the Ranger, an equally powerful vessel. His quartermaster, Charles Harris, has been made captain. Together, they carry on plundering and blaze a trail of destruction across the Caribbean. Around this time, Lowe's crew captures a French trading vessel. On board is a cook, who Lowe describes as being a greasy fellow who would fry well. To test the truth of this, Lowe has the man burnt alive. As more such harrowing stories pile up, the need to catch Ned Lowe becomes increasingly urgent. Not only is he the most feared pirate on the high seas, but he is one of the most wanted criminals in the world. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. The end of Lowe's career starts getting really chaotic for him. He's got loads of people after him, Authorities around North America, the Caribbean, parts of South America, they are all kind of on watch to look out for Ned Lowe because his crimes are just getting more and more brutal. He's become much more violent and he's become much more frightening. And so people are really focusing on trying to get after him. And so as a result, it's almost like Lowe himself starts getting reckless. He starts attacking loads of ships kind of all over the place. But as a result, he's leading a much bigger paper trail behind him. And so people are able to kind of start catching up into his whereabouts. Sailing off the Carolinas, Lowe raids a number of merchant ships and, through torturing sailors, 
he becomes aware that the British Navy are now making a concerted effort to capture him. He learns that there is a bounty on his head, and that several battleships are in the vicinity on counter-piracy expeditions. One of those hunting him is Captain Peter Solgard aboard the Greyhound, a 20-gun warship with a crew of 120. Lowe is hardly concerned, far from it. He seems to relish the attention. Lowe and Harris agree that there is no need to change their current course of action. Both men doubt that the Royal Navy would coordinate an entire fleet against them, and a single warship would be mad to take on their combined strength. The Fortune carries 10 guns and 70 men, while the Ranger boasts 8 guns and 50 men. In support sails the Fancy and other small prizes, consorts and tenders. So whether through arrogance or in sheer defiance, Ned Lowe doubles down. He heads north towards Massachusetts and the colony of Rhode Island, where he raids several wealthy merchant ships, striking at the heart of Britain's Atlantic trade. And rather than try to disguise his ships, he has them hoist his signature flags. After all, he hasn't been cultivating a fearsome reputation for nothing. He wants every single victim to know exactly who it is that now hunts them. Eric J. Dolan is the author of Black Flag's Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. We do have this newspaper article that says that Lowe's flag was basically a man or a skeleton-like man standing, and in one hand, he's raised aloft an hourglass. And that's to signify to the potential victim that your time is running out to make a decision. You either surrender or we are going to attack. Make your decision wisely and quickly. In the other outstretched arm was a harpoon. And at the tip of the harpoon was a heart. And the heart had blood dripping from it. And that was supposed to indicate, the iconography was supposed to indicate the violence that may be coming soon if you don't surrender to us, the pirates. It's June 10th, 1723, near Block Island, Massachusetts. On board the Fortune, Lowe sees a large ship on the horizon that looks ripe for plunder. Through a spyglass, Lowe studies the vessel and sees New England flags. It looks to his experienced eye like another trading ship, or perhaps a whaler. Lowe watches as the ship changes course, trying to escape. But there is little wind in the air, and its progress is slow. Excited by the sight of vulnerable prey, Lowe takes after the ship with the ranger following behind. They run up the Jolly Roger and let loose a warning shot. But the New England vessel doesn't stop. The chase is on. After an hour or so, the fortune is drawing near. Lowe feels the blood pumping through his veins as he grips the hilt of his sword tight. Unlike most pirates, he prefers a victim that puts up a fight. He barks orders at his pirates to line the starboard beam and prepare to board. By the time they're alongside the merchant ship, Lowe is almost blind with bloodlust. 
a cry goes up from the deck of the New England vessel, and soldiers in crimson red tunics suddenly fill the deck. He realizes his mistake too late. The seemingly helpless ship reveals her true colors. Royal Navy flags fly up the flagpoles and she suddenly tacks to starboard before unleashing a full broadside at the Fortune. Lowe instantly realizes that this must be HMS Greyhound. Shocked to realize he's been led into a trap by Captain Solgard, Lowe dives to the floor along with his crew, covering their head from the maelstrom of splinters, musket shot and cannon fire, as the Greyhound continues firing. After a moment or two, raging, Ned Lowe leaps up and commands his men to fight back. The pirates return fire, but their ship has already taken damage, and the barrage from the Greyhound is fierce. Suddenly, high above him, the mast of the Fortune explodes. At this rate, it will not be long until they're destroyed. However, help is at hand. The Ranger finally enters the fray. Charles Harris has come to Ned's rescue. The Ranger opens fire on the Greyhound, and the sky above them grows dark with gun smoke. The battle has now shifted. Captain Solgard is now fully engaged with the other pirate ship. Lowe has a decision to make. Return to the fight, or flee. His ship is leaking and nearly immobilized. They could try and board the Navy vessel, but they'd be facing Royal Marines, not Marblehead fishermen. Cursing, Ned Lowe orders his crew to break out the oars and to row them out of there. Without a strong wind, they can escape their pursuers. Meanwhile, the lack of breeze works against the Ranger. Harris, too, tries to lose the Navy ship, but it is dragged into a running battle over many hours. Finally, the Greyhound comes alongside the Ranger and boards her. A short, brutal close-quarters combat ensues before Harris's pirates surrender. A triumphant Peter Solgard boards the Ranger himself and immediately strides towards the defeated pirate captain. Edward Lowe, I presume? Charles Harris spits and a toothless grin spreads across his face. He lifts his manacled hands to point at the fortune, now shrinking into the horizon. Solgard is livid to learn that he's failed to capture Ned Lowe. However, there is no doubt that his victory here has dealt a severe blow to Lowe's operation. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. With Lowe fleeing and the Ranger defeated, news of the battle is met with huge applause throughout the British colonies. And one thing that's interesting about Peter Solgard is after capturing the Ranger, he was feted as a hero. And in New York City, which was also troubled by pirates over the course of the 17-teens and 1720s, they gave Peter Solgard what's called the freedom of the city, which is sort of like the key to the city. And he got a special inscribed box to honor his achievement. So yeah, it was it was a feather in the cap of a Royal Naval captain if he could capture a pirate. Everybody won. The captain won and the colonists won and the mother country got to claim that they were cracking down on piracy. The only people who lost were the pirates. The pirates taken aboard the Ranger are taken to Newport, Rhode Island, to face justice. In July, 36 of these men are put on trial for the crimes that they are alleged to have committed under Ned Lowe's command. The trial with Ned Lowe's men is quite heavily publicized because of how infamous that Lowe himself had become. So like all other pirate trials, it was transcribed directly. People came to watch it. They all had their crimes listed out before them and the captured members of Ned Lowe's crew all had to kind of give their statements in which all of his depredations, all of his cruelties and torturous acts are all being recorded with loads of detail. Many of the grotesque stories that have forged Ned Lowe's reputation come from this trial, including the horrific mutilation of the Portuguese captain that occurred in January 1723. As each crew member attests to the vile acts carried out on Lowe's orders, his fearsome legend grows. So there are a lot of pieces of evidence that we have of real brutality on the part of Lowe. When he killed those two Wampanoag Indians, the record of that comes from testimony, but also one of the Indians was found a short while later, beheaded, floating in the water with his hands and feet bound. And a minister on Martha's Vineyard wrote about the recovery of that body in his diary. So I think the evidence is pretty clear that Lowe was rather sadistic and killed quite a few people. Could some of it been exaggerated? Yes. And I think that that's the case throughout the history of piracy at this time, because newspapers back then, just like newspapers today, want to get eyes reading their articles and papers. And sometimes that causes reporters to maybe exaggerate the luridity of the story to make it more compelling. But with Lowe, I think there's enough real evidence there to indicate that he was a miserable, miserable person who definitely killed or ordered to be killed quite a few people, tortured others, and blazed a fiery path across the colonial sky. The reports of Ned Lowe's atrocities succeed in capturing the public's imagination. After all, for decades now, pirates have been a public obsession inspiring plays, songs, even some of the first English novels. But many of their exploits are clearly exaggerated in the press, like caricature villains from a terrifying fairy tale. 
Here, at last, is a pirate who lives up to the billing. Everything that we learn about Lowe through the trial of the Ranger and elsewhere supports the image of a real-life monster, a bona fide serial killer. Of the 36 men placed on trial from the Ranger, eight are acquitted, while another two are pardoned for turning evidence. The rest are taken to Gravelly Point on Newport's Harbor and hanged on July 19, 1723. And yet, despite this public sense that Ned Lowe has already been vanquished, he still remains at large. Following the defeat, Lowe sails northwards in his stricken ship. He rants and raves, and his dwindling crew watching on as he lurches from violent rages to outbursts of weeping. In the night, they overhear him in his cabin, calling out for Elizabeth, his lost daughter, and making promises that he will someday return to her. But such reflections do nothing to temper his violence. As impossible as it may seem, the monstrous Ned Lowe is about to get even worse. He captures two vessels out of Plymouth, Massachusetts, barbarously killing both of the captains. One of the captains, he scalped, and his chest was cut open to get at his heart. The pirates roasted the heart and forced some of his crewmen to eat it. Then they set upon another captain, slashing and mauling him. And then again, in one of Lowe's signature moves, he cut off his ears and roasted them before making the captain consume his own flesh. And these horrific injuries soon led to the captain's death. But before leaving the survivors, Lowe told them that he would do the like to all he meets. He leaves traumatized survivors to tell the tale, with gruesome, cannibalistic, sadistic acts now his calling card. He soon captures a new ship. The Merry Christmas is a large merchant vessel from Virginia, which he modifies to carry 34 guns, making it his most powerful ship yet. His rampage continues around the coast of Nantucket and Nova Scotia, where he attacks dozens of fishing boats and whalers, before turning his fleet south once again. His war against the world is far from over. It's the summer of 1724 on Roatan Island. Leaving their ship anchored in an isolated bay, 18 axe-wielding baymen row ashore. A mix of English, Welsh, and Scots, these hardy foresters have traveled here in search of valuable logwood, while hoping to avoid the attention of the Spanish. They begin exploring the island, and one bayman breaks off from the others. He heads up the coast, knife in hand, on the hunt for food. He climbs over some rocks when he stumbles across the wild, bony figure of Philip Ashton. Marooned for more than a year, Ashton's matted hair and beard drape past his shoulders, and his once pale skin is now as brown as tree bark. The torn remnants of his trousers are the only clue to his previous life. Both the Bayman and Ashton are astonished to see each other. Ashton opens his mouth to speak, but all that comes out is a rough croak. The Bayman lifts his knife 
ready to defend himself. When the castaway speaks, my name is Philip Ashton. Surprised to hear his native tongue, the bayman lowers his weapon and gestures for Ashton to do the same. Then he laughs and takes Ashton by the hand. Soon the two men are embracing each other in mutual wonder, and Ashton weeps tears of ecstatic joy. The other baymen are fascinated to find a real-life Robinson Crusoe living here. They greet him warmly and welcome him into their group. They share their clothes and provisions, and Ashton in turn shares with them the sorry tale of how he came to be stranded. When he utters the name Ned Lowe, the baymen are visibly shocked. They've heard all about the murderous pirate, that he's a cannibal, that he's the devil himself. Ashton's stories confirm their worst fears. But he also offers a personal insight into the innermost workings of this violent maniac. Taken into the pirate's confidence, Ashton witnessed Lowe's emotional outpourings about his late wife who had died in childbirth and the young daughter he had abandoned in Boston. How depression would consume him and how grief fueled his anger. Over the coming months, Ashton works alongside the British Bayman. They promise to sell him back to civilization once they have completed their labor. The hardwood can fetch enormous sums, but these are Spanish waters and the trade is illegal. Every day, the group keeps an eye on the horizon for trouble. But it's not just the Spanish they have to fear. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It is late autumn, 1724. Under the rapidly setting sun, a small rowboat pulls through the shimmering waters. Philip Ashton rows back to Roatan alongside three other baymen. They are returning from a nearby island where they have been hunting wild deer. But even from a distance, the men can hear that something is terribly wrong on shore. Pausing to strain their ears, they hear the unmistakable sound of gunshots and screams coming from their camp. Ashton shivers. His time as Ned Lowe's prisoner has made him all too familiar with the sounds of human suffering. As their little boat drifts closer, 
Ashton sees the large vessel anchored off the coast. A jolt of panic tears through him. A Jolly Roger is flying from its mast. For a dreadful moment, Ashton's heart seems to stop. Is this the day he has long been dreading? The day Ned Lowe returns to retrieve his prisoner? The next morning, Ashton and his friends slowly creep into camp. Thankfully, the pirates have departed, taking everything of value with them. But the smoldering ruins and lifeless bodies lying strewn across the beach are a traumatic reminder of the scourge of piracy on these waters. As the Baymen bury their dead, Ashton wonders if they will ever be free of the horror of men such as Ned Lowe. Ashton is right to be fearful that Lowe himself might one day return to Roatan Island. During the time that he has been stranded, Lowe has been massacring his way across the Atlantic and back again. It has been reported that he rejoined his old pirate mentor, George Lowther, teaming up to torment the slavers and merchants of West Africa, wreaking bloody mayhem from the Azores down to Sierra Leone before returning to the Caribbean. The Bay of Honduras could have easily been his next stop. But what happens now might be the most fascinating aspect of Ned Lowe's career. Or rather, what doesn't happen? Because while nearly every other notorious pirate of this era is ultimately either captured or killed, Ned Lowe simply vanishes without a trace. Just as it seems Lowe is embarking on a horrifying escalation, he suddenly disappears from the historical record. Many have come to believe he is eventually captured by the French or another colonial power. After all, it isn't just the English who are after him. Then again, perhaps the alternative is simply too horrible to entertain. No one wants to think he may have retired and slipped back into society scot-free, unpunished for his horrific crimes. Does he return to Boston? Attempt to track down Elizabeth, the abandoned daughter that had been tormenting his thoughts for so long? To this day, historians can only speculate as to his fate. And so there are several different theories as to what happened. One is that he literally just disappeared from history. He managed to escape and was never heard from again. There are theories that his crew turned against him and marooned him or outright killed him. The two most likely theories are A, that he managed to escape and sailed towards Brazil because there were some accounts stating that he was last seen heading in that direction. And even the National Maritime Museum suggests that he was probably heading towards Brazil. Another major theory that possibly is also true that a lot of people have accepted was that when his crew mutinied against him, they marooned him and he was later picked up by a French ship and Lowe tried to disguise themselves, but they recognized him as a pirate and the French ended up executing him on Martinique. But we don't necessarily have any official records. Lowe's sudden disappearance makes the surviving witness testimony even more important. Without a confession or a trial, the only insight into this peerless monster 
comes to us from those who suffered at his hand. It's March 1725. Back on Roatan Island, Lowe's former prisoner, Philip Ashton, has been stranded for almost two years now. Following the pirate attack on their camp in the autumn of 1724, many of the British baymen fled back to Honduras, though some remained on the island with Ashton, fearing the Spanish on the mainland. But as month follows desolate month, Ashton once again begins to doubt he will ever leave Roatan alive. And then finally, on March 1725, there was salvation. Offshore, Ashton saw two vessels, a large Royal Navy vessel and a smaller, what appeared to be an American merchant vessel. And it turns out that that merchant vessel was actually from Salem, Massachusetts, which is right next to Marblehead, where Ashton was from. And not only that, the captain of the merchant vessel, Captain Dove, happened to know Ashton and his family. So he was saved in March of 1725, by May 1st, 1725, the Salem vessel docked in Salem nearly three years after he was captured by Lowe and a little more than two years since running into the woods on Roatan. He gets off the vessel, rushes straight to his father's house in Marblehead, where he was, according to his recollection, received as one coming to from the dead with all imaginable surprise and joy. Now, the reason we know so much about what happened to Ashton and sort of his interactions with Edward Lowe is that after he came back to Marblehead, the local reverend, a John Barnard of Marblehead, decided that Ashton's story was sort of a parable of religious salvation. He viewed his coming back to Marblehead and being saved as being providential and guided by a divine hand. It's not at all clear that Ashton viewed it the same way, but Reverend John Bernard offered to work with Ashton to write his memoirs, basically, about his experience. This memorial to Philip Ashton became a runaway bestseller in the colonies, in part because this was a few years after, about five or six years after, Defoe wrote the very famous book, Robinson Crusoe, about another man who had been marooned on an island and survived for a number of years and come back to civilization. And here was Ashton, who was a real-life American Robinson Crusoe. Philip Ashton's account of his time held as Ned Lowe's captive is not the only historical source that attests to his extreme cruelty. However, his memoir continues to provide the most compelling chronicle due to its fascinating personal insights into the mind of a monster. Like other sources, he portrays Lowe as a man who would commit remorseless violence against his victims, often inflicting pain for his own amusement. But Ashton also gives us an understanding of the pirate's inner turmoil, a man who was himself tormented by demons. Whatever really drove Ned Lowe to his horrifying behavior, his career as a pirate captain lasted for three short years. But in that time, he terrorized the seas with such ferocity that his war against the world will never be forgotten. Next week on Real Pirates. We continue with stories told by piracy's victims, those who are forced to join pirate crews. Many are compliant, others are rebellious, some would rather die 
but most just want to get out alive. Under the command of Captain Thomas Anstis, merchant sailor Bridstock Weaver provides perhaps the most dramatic tale of a life aboard a pirate ship and doing whatever it takes to survive. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Beckson. Written by James Benmore. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. <laughs>